It's Friday, March 11th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. It's been another busy week in Annapolis. State lawmakers move forward legislation to ban ghost guns. After an hour of emotional debate, the House passes bills to make it easier for people to get abortions. Maryland's growing surplus leads to calls for a gas tax holiday. A report shows declining pollution enforcement at the Maryland Department of the Environment. Baltimore City Hall is set to reopen to the public in April. And the mayor announces his largest ARPA fund allocation thus far for housing. It's the Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The state's latest positivity rate is 1.61 percent. That's a significant drop from the peak high in January when the rate was nearly 30 percent. Currently, 254 patients are hospitalized in Maryland due to COVID, with 62 in intensive care. Nearly 4.5 million Maryland residents are fully vaccinated against the virus. In our legislative roundup from Annapolis, both chambers of the General Assembly move forward today in the effort to ban ghost guns, those unregistered and untraceable firearms that can be bought online without a background check. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. The Senate gave preliminary approval to its version with no debate. The House of Delegates gave final approval to its version, but not without uniform Republican opposition. Delegate Haven Shoemaker of Carroll County argued lawmakers were criminalizing hobbyists and collectors by requiring all guns to have serial numbers. Here's a rhetorical question. Wouldn't it make more sense to punish criminals. Delegate Johnny Motts of the Eastern Shore charged the bill violates the Second Amendment rights of gun owners. Passing this not only threatens their civil right, but it sends the message that we're making our community safer. Once the Senate passes its version, lawmakers will have to reconcile the bills. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Two bills that would make it easier for people to obtain abortions in the state by enshrining the right in the Constitution and expanding who can perform them passed through the House of Delegates after more than an hour of emotional debate today. WYPR's Calentansel Suddeth reports. Most of the debate boiled down to moral disagreement over abortion as a practice, but Republicans again challenged the need for the legislation. Carroll County Delegate Susan Krebs said abortion is already accessible. Abortion is legal and widely available up to 24 weeks in Maryland for any reason. After 24 weeks, the mental health reason kicks in. So, say, why do we need this bill? Washington County Delegate William Wivel argued taxpayers shouldn't be required to contribute funds to a practice they don't support. The Abortion Care Access Act would allocate $3.5 million to training new providers. You know, I heard a fellow colleague say, that they like to donate to Planned Parenthood. That's where this money should be going to. If someone wants to support this. The bills now head to the Senate. For WYPR News, I'm Callan Tansel Suddeth. And as Joel McCord reports, Maryland's economic outlook is even rosier than expected. The Board of Revenue Estimates voted Thursday to increase revenue estimates for the current fiscal year and next by a combined $1.6 billion. 
The state's fiscal experts attributed the increase mostly to the effects of federal stimulus money working its way through the economy. State Comptroller Peter Francho called on the General Assembly to use that money to enact a three-month gas tax holiday, distribute stimulus checks to low-wage earners, and invest in infrastructure projects. But he warned it shouldn't go to long-term spending. That's what I'm afraid of, that we'll spend, put this money into the operating budget, and then we'll have to, when it stops coming from the feds, will have to increase taxes. That is what should not happen. The gas tax holiday, for example, could easily be paid for with a surplus, he said. And it would immensely help these low-wage earners who are getting back into the workforce and beginning to commute. Baltimore City State's attorney Marilyn Mosby is facing a new superseding indictment in her ongoing perjury case. The new indictment filed Thursday is not a new charge, but prosecutors say the new evidence bolsters their case. It shows that Mosby was in Baltimore while claiming to be living in her Florida vacation home. Mosby is scheduled to stand trial later this year. Mayor Brandon Scott announced Thursday that Baltimore City Hall will reopen its doors to the public on April 4th, after two years of virtual city meetings. WYPR's Emily Sullivan has more. Scott's announcement comes weeks after he lifted Baltimore's indoor mask mandate, which prompted snowballing public pressure to reopen City Hall. Some employees first returned to the building over the summer as other local leaders decided to reopen the doors of their public buildings. Scott, who set stricter pandemic restrictions than his local peers, cited several reasons for his holdup from the Omicron variant to unfinished talks with other city leaders, as well as a supply chain delay in acquiring hybrid technology needed to make city meetings accessible both virtually and in person. Until that technology is acquired, testifying at legislative hearings will be limited to in-person attendees only. Some public meetings will continue to be live-streamed on Charm TV. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. The polar bear plunge is set to return on March 18th with in-person participants after it was postponed due to a state of emergency in January. Organizers say more than 50 people have already signed up for the plunge at Sandy Point State Park. The event will kick off a number of other plunge events to raise money for the Special Olympics. With extra daylight comes an hour of lost sleep. Don't forget, most of the country will spring forward this weekend. Clocks will turn forward by an hour early Sunday morning as part of daylight saving time. Maryland's Department of the Environment has been falling down on the job when it comes to holding polluters accountable for their violations of rules meant to protect our waterways. That's according to a report released Wednesday by the Chesapeake Accountability Project, a coalition of environmental advocacy groups. WYPR's Joel McCord has more. The report, based on data from the Department of the Environment, shows a dramatic decline since Governor Larry Hogan took office in the number of inspections and enforcement actions. It also shows a declining number of inspections of industrial facilities, construction sites, sewage treatment plants, and other sources of water pollution. Caitlin Schmidt of the Center for Progressive Reform says the numbers have been falling for some time. We've seen a downward decline in a number of different indicators that that point to MDE's enforcement levels. And we've seen that decline sort of happen steadily over a 20-year period and then 
more dramatically in the last six years under Governor Hogan. The report also shows MDE's inspection arm took 67 percent fewer enforcement actions over the last six years than it did over the previous six years, and it identified a record low number of significant violations. Eliza Steinmeier of the Chesapeake Legal Alliance called that a dangerous trend. At a time when our environment is more important than ever, these trends indicate really the deep prioritization of enforcement of the very laws that are designed to protect Maryland's waterways and and our communities. Courtney Bernhardt of the Environmental Integrity Project said water pollution enforcement needs to be strengthened as the states in the Chesapeake Bay watershed struggle to reach their cleanup goals. The Chesapeake Bay is also not getting better and it's facing pressure from increased urban development and additional pollution sources with climate change impacts looming on the horizon. The report found that facilities such as sewage treatment plants have been allowed to continue operating without renewing expired permits or had them automatically renewed. It found 153 so-called zombie permits. More than half of them had expired and been allowed to continue for several years. Doug Myers, a senior scientist at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, said it is important to update those permits on a regular basis because continued development, intense heat, and storms requires changes in what a facility is allowed to discharge. So a zombie permit that is uh, administratively continued for a year, two years, five years, ten years, Uh, is a great concern because we think that is degrading water quality and we have some pretty good uh, evidence that water quality degradation is occurring as a result of discharges not being uh, adjusted. Schmidt of the Center for Progressive Reform said part of the problem is a lack of resources. MDE's budget continues to shrink over the years. They now make up, you know, less than one-fifth of one percent of the state's overall budget. Um, And we think that plays a large factor in in the overall enforcement levels at MDE. The report found that between 2002 and 2022, MDE lost one out of every seven staff members. The Chesapeake Legal Alliance's Steinmeier said she talks regularly with MDE staffers. Part of what they're telling us is there's very competitive positions at counties and at at the federal level. Um, and the state positions are not as competitive in terms of compensation packages. MDE issued a statement saying it has not had a chance to read the report and comment, but insisted the department has never wavered in its commitment to compliance and enforcement. The statement called attention to recent actions against the Verso paper mill and the Morgantown coal-fired power plant in western Maryland, as well as Baltimore sewage treatment plants. It said the department would continue to take aggressive enforcement actions and seek stiff penalties when warranted. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott announced an allocation of $100 million in federal relief money for housing equity initiatives today. It's the Scott administration's largest ARPA allocation by far. Scott said tackling urban blight is one of his administration's most consequential undertakings. Not only does this issue threaten the safety and health of our first responders, 
the city's large vacant housing stock impacts the overall economic health and vitality of our city and is a drain on many neighborhoods and, com and communities. The city launched a 30-day review process of vacant homes after three firefighters were killed in January, putting out a blaze in a vacant house. Chief Administrative Officer Christopher Shorter oversaw that review process. Shorter said that as of today, there are 14,952 vacant buildings in Baltimore City. The vast majority of those are privately owned. Tackling this problem will require significant financial and capital resources. Shorter issued a list of recommendations for tackling the problem, which include preventing property tax sale, providing relief for unpaid property taxes, and more money allocated for demolishing or stabilizing vacant buildings. We also included preventing vacancies through expanding home ownership opportunities to renters uh, and connecting legacy homeowners and older adults, including increased funding for our hubs program uh, to provide home repairs to seniors uh, so that they can safely age in place. Shorter said his work group will continue to meet regularly to ensure their recommendations are implemented. The mayor said $40 million of the $100 million allocation will go into eliminating and preventing blight. This announcement is about taking actions that will fulfill our commitments to our residents around fostering home ownership and addressing blight vacant properties, our housing affordability issues, housing insecurity issues within our neighborhoods that we know in Baltimore have been left behind for far too long, and dare I say, on purpose. More than half of those funds will go into affordable housing developments, including those in Park Heights and the Perkins-Somerset Old Town Transformation Area. And $4 million will be used for providing legal services and utility assistance for tenants vulnerable to eviction. This offer investment is a key step towards holistically addressing the issue of vacant properties, housing laws, and housing instability across Baltimore. All issues which uh, exacerbate public health disparities and contribute to negative economic impacts. Scott was accompanied at his Friday announcement by about half the city council, as well as Congressman Kwesi Fume. The congressman called the ARPA allocation significant and lamented that the city's housing crisis has persisted for so long. Forty-three years ago, a much younger version of myself raised my hand and took the oath of office to be a part of this city council. Some of the vacants that are standing today were standing 43 years ago. That is sinful. Should never happen. City Housing Commissioner Alice Kennedy said securing this money for housing took a lot of public advocacy. The investment made today helps us move forward on many fronts. We'll further our work on resident protection and anti-displacement. We'll bring more capital investment to our impact investment areas. We'll support legacy homeowners and help build wealth in our middle neighborhoods. She said our department will increase homeownership opportunities with the help of partners like Live Baltimore. Today's announcement follows a $90.4 million allocation Scott announced last month for homeless services. Much of those funds will go into setting up hotel shelters. We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number 410-235-6060. 
We've also got a button on the WYPR app so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose Comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410-235-6060. We're always happy to hear from you and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Kellen Hansel-Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.